All right, tonight we're going to begin the book of Esther. You can open up to that historical book of Esther. And what worked out well for me being in Florida and not teaching two Tuesdays in a row is I just went back and forth in Esther because I read the upcoming text every day. So I've never spent so much time in Esther in my life. And I feel like I know all the characters really well. I never really thought about Haman's wife, but, uh, you know, she got on my radar about the fourth time going through the book. I'm like, well, look at her, you know, like how it worked out for her. Um, so I'm really excited to teach this book. Originally, I thought I might be able to teach it in a couple of weeks before Christmas. And once I got to Florida and was taking my time, I'm like, there's no way. I don't want to be in a hurry in this book. So we'll be in this book for at least three to five weeks and take our time because it's a fantastic story of God's faithfulness. It is the one book where God's never mentioned directly in the book. It's pretty fascinating that way. It's the book where, in a sense, God is silent uh, in speaking, but he's very evident in working. If you're looking for him working, and it's a book where he is working behind the scenes. The book takes place in the timeline uh, of King Ahasuerus, and he's a Medo-Persian king. And in those line of Medo-Persian kings, after Babylon fell, you know, the time of Daniel, when Belshazzar and all that happened in the book of Daniel, then you have these Medo-Persian kings and Cyrus and Darius and all these guys. They can get confusing. But Arasuris is the king at this point. He reigned from 486 B.C. to 464 B.C. So he had a reign of 22 years. And think about how we look at all those Israel kings in the north, all those Judah kings in the south. So we have a pretty good feel. 22 years is the, you know, Y2K, right? That's the, that's the new, that's, that's us. When, you know, we're, Y2K was going to happen in the year 2000, and then here we are now. That's about that timeline. So it gives a good reference point for how long this man was king. At the time of the story of Esther, it's a pretty much exactly 583 B.C. when the text is introduced to us tonight. We, we have exact numbers on these things from Babylonian records, Medo-Persian records, and biblical records. So it's easy to pin these things down. And since we just finished Nehemiah, Nehemiah's story is about 30 years after these events we're going to read about in this book. But since we finished Ezra before Nehemiah, I can tell you that Zerubbabel is before this, and Ezra, his return with his couple thousand people, is right about the same time. So it gives us our timeline. So in that post-captive world of Israel, the Jews coming back to their promised land after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, that first wave of almost 50,000 came with Zerubbabel. Then another group came with Ezra a little bit later. That's the time of Esther in the Medo-Persian Empire there in Iran, modern Iran. And then that last group came, uh, you have Nehemiah going back about 25 years later. So it gives us an idea where the story sort of lands in the sequence of events. And that's our background to the book. And we pick it up tonight in chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 and the uh, introduction of the king and Queen Basti and all these events that paved the way for Esther to come on the scene. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. By the way, the greatest kingdom of any uh, geographical extension up to that time in human history that we're aware of. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Sushan, the citadel, 
that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susan, the citadel, for from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen, purple and silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver, of mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white and black marble, wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king, in accordance with the law. The drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should be, that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And that'll give you a lot insight to what was going on. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which means he was intoxicated, he commanded Mahuman, Bista, Harbona, Bikta, Abagta, Zether, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Bashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. These first 13 verses are the events that put in motion other events that define the book, and just takes us on this incredible journey, but this is the opening scene with this great king who rules over a kingdom with the largest swath of territory known to man up to this point in time. That's, pretty, that's a pretty big deal. That's a lot of power. A lot of money, a lot of power. And as we look at our own billionaires in our timeline, how they have lots of money and lots of power, and they like to have big parties and show it and stuff like that. There's nothing new under the sun, so that's what he's doing. 180 days, you know, that's... That's half a year. That's a six-month party. <laughs> I mean, if you haven't even gone, like when people go somewhere like Cancun for a week to party, I mean, you run out of gas after a few days, you know, like it does lose its mojo. And um, that's a long time to have a party. And that's with all of his homies, you know, that's with all of his crew, like his, his posse, as they say. It's a, he's just having a six-month party. He's got all this money. And people that have lots of money and lots of power never have a shortage of finding people that want to ride on that power and that free ride and that gravy train, as they say. And then he, he shifts gears and has a seven-day feast for all the people. So, you know, kind of like that bullseye, the red, the orange, he's like, it starts here, but now he's going to really just throw a big party for everybody so they all know that they're part of the best kingdom possible. You know, he, he, he wants everyone to know, like, I am the best king, I'm a benevolent king, this is the best thing ever, and now I want you to celebrate we're going to be drinking and partying. We're going to be playing music and all that stuff. But if you don't want to drink, it's not compulsory. You know, you, you tea toddlers, you can just stay dry if you want to do that. But we're going to, we're going to keep raging here in the capital and show you how we do it the Medo-Persian way. And then Queen Vashti's having a party too. So the queen has a party for the women. So the men over there having their party and the women are having like their women's event, you know, Medo-Persian style, whatever that looks like. And, uh, they're, they're just doing it. And it's all one big happy party. 
in the Medo-Persian Empire until, until the most powerful man at the party gets drunk and does stupid things. Everyone's having a good time. But Solomon said 500 years prior, who wakes up with woes and wounds? You know, the one who goes long on drink and, you know, says, let's do it again. And they have bruises they, they can't explain. If you've ever grown up in a family where there's alcohol abuse, it's, it's hard to handle. I did. I grew up with, in a family where both my parents drank. My mom drank a lot. My dad drank on the weekends. My dad drank like a Marine on the weekends. And my mom drank like a socialite, pretty much a functioning alcoholic her entire life. It's no surprise my sister became an alcoholic. It's no surprise my brother had alcohol problems. My sister's led to her being on the streets for six years, out of her mind. And my brother, you know, he's doing pretty good these days, so good for him, praise the Lord. And for me, about a seven-year run with alcohol that was completely destructive for everything good in my life. And I can say, praise the Lord, that in being married for 35 years, never having a drop of alcohol be a part of my family has really strengthened the execution of the game plan for a fruitful, successful marriage with the Lord. And uh, some people can drink a glass of wine at dinner. Some people can drink a Corona at uh, having a, a fish taco. Some people, when they drink, they drink a 12-pack and take their clothes off. So, you know, everyone's a little bit different. And, uh, but we generally tend to embarrass ourselves the more we drink. And that's just the way it is. And... Alcohol is just an equal abuser. You know, it doesn't play preference. It's like the universe and the universal laws that God gives. And you drink, you're going to get drunk. It's going to inhibit your process here that stops you from doing things you otherwise would do. And I mean, when, when alcohol is introduced in the Bible, the first person that drinks it on record is Noah. He gets naked and embarrasses himself. Second person gets naked is Lot, and he embarrasses himself. So two for two, right at the gate, people taking their clothes off and making fools of themselves. And here's this guy... He is the most powerful man in the world. And he's drunk, and he's like, hey, I got a great idea. Let's make my hot wife parade around half naked in front of all my friends and show them, like, I've got the trophy wife. <laughs> no, no, that's not going to work. So let's talk about Vashti. She's the daughter of Belshazzar, the Babylonian king that lost the kingdom. She was a princess at one time, and a very powerful princess. And in the fall of Babylon, she survived that, and Artaxerxes' father and grandfather, somehow she was preserved and given to him as a wife. Now, we're told in the text she is very attractive. She's a very attractive woman. And she comes from royalty. So really, like, if you think about, you know, birds of a feather flocking together, he was a prince, she was a princess. So they do, you know, on paper, you know, medieval times, like, you know, Catherine the Great, being a Prussian princess, gets involved with Peter the Great's grandson, and there you go, the, you know, the Romanovs just continue rolling in the 1700s, if you understand how those things worked. So on paper, it looks good. And for a man that could have almost any woman for a wife, which we're going to see when the story of Esther starts getting traction in the next chapter, this was the woman, listen, it's important, this was the woman he chose to be his wife to wear the royal crown. That's significant. So if he's a player, as they say, this is still the woman that has his heart and wears the royal crown. This is his wife. If you look at commentators on this and commentaries, there's a lot of 
Well, the, the Jewish rabbis and whatnot, they believe there's an implication that she was supposed to be like half nude, almost like the bikini contest at a beauty pageant, something like that. And she was having none of it. So this is that Vashti. And so just setting the table on her, I just want to seal the fruit on Ahasuerus. This, what happened this night, I'm quite certain he regretted. But men are prideful. And men that are honest know that, and women don't even need to know they're being honest or not. They know men are prideful. Men are prideful, especially men who are the most powerful men in their little universe, and this guy is that guy. And for as long as they have been married, she had been able to work with this prideful king, and she had his affection. But she watched her husband act like a fool for half a year with a six-month party and then amongst his peer group, and then he's embarrassing himself amongst the people he's leading. And I suppose for, uh, and she watched her dad, Belshazzar, do this, because remember, Belshazzar's drunken feast as well. And I think every woman just has a point where she says, you know, enough is enough. You know, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm just, I'm done with this. And I don't care if you're the most powerful man on earth. You're not sleeping in this room tonight. And I'm definitely not parading around in a, my bikini in front of your friends here. And the general population, because her husband had lost good judgment, good cognitive judgment, and he's actually going to humiliate himself by what he's going to do in humiliating his wife. He's going to make a fool of his wife, and he's already been a fool for anyone that's honest enough to evaluate that, but now he's going to really make a fool of himself. And in a way, she really restrained her husband from embarrassing himself further by subjecting her to this in front of these guys. But it did cost her. So his drunkenness cost him his marriage. Let me say that again. His drunkenness and the decisions he made while intoxicated when his heart was married, it cost him his marriage. And we all know somebody whose drunkenness cost them something serious. I remember praying with the guy at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, went to prison for seven years, killed a 17-year-old girl while drunk driving. One night, one bad decision, got in a car and killed a 17-year-old girl, took that life from planet Earth in drunkenness. Very repentant, very remorseful. The family wanted nothing to do with him, even his remorse, but at least he was serving the Lord and going to like NAA meetings and stuff like that, rescue missions and sharing his story to encourage people. It's just amazing, like, you, you, can't, you can't get it back. Things you say when you're drunk, you can't get back. And things you do when you're drunk that cause great harm, infidelity, those types of things, you just you have to be really careful with alcohol. And, and life is an ebb and flow. The tide's always going in and out, and it's, you know, testing, trials, tribulation, tragedy, and triumph. And in that cycle, it's challenging enough when you're fully functioning strong with the, the fruit of the Spirit and the mind of the Spirit, which is the, the will of God rather than to be drunk and filled with dissipation. So to me, I look at this text as like, it's just a strong exhortation to just be reminded what happens to us when we're, when we're incapacitated through drugs and alcohol and the things that can happen. And it's just, it's not good. So this would be far-reaching effect on this king's life, which we'll see going forward. I do think he learned from it because how he treats Esther is very different than how he treated Vashti. So I think there's, there's a, 
Like, I think he, I think he learned from it. Uh, I, I'm speculating. I can't prove it. But how he treated his first wife and how he treated his first queen and his second queen is completely different. So we do know that if you know the story. But now I want to go to Queen Vashti. Uh, Harriet Tubman, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, the famous literature work in America, this is one of her heroes, Queen Vashti. In fact, Queen Vashti's been a hero for feminists for quite some time. She's a, she's a poster child for the Me Too movement, actually, if you think about it, in a good way. She just wasn't having any of it. So ladies, like, I, I, when I, Jennifer will testify, when I was in Florida, I was like, man, Queen Vashti's like radical. Like, she went all in saying, I'm going to die on this hill. This, this is what I'm going to die on. She knew it could cost her, her her palace, her lifestyle, and everything else. But you know what it wouldn't cost her? And this is very important, ladies and gentlemen. It would not cost her her dignity. In fact, it would strengthen her dignity. There's a lot to be said to wake up and look at yourself in the mirror with nothing but knowing that you've a woman or a man of honor and integrity. And to thy own self be true, as Shakespeare said in the play Hamlet. And you're true to yourself. And everyone has a hill they're going to die on. And this is Vashti's hill. We talked about during COVID, right? What hill you want to die on? This is Vashti's hill. You know, <laughs> she watched her drunken dad cross Babylon the kingdom. She's been a part of all this. Stuff. It's like, no, this is it. You've crossed the line. I don't care if you rule 127 providences all the way past Pakistan and India. You go find yourself another woman that's going to humiliate herself while you humiliate yourself. She had none of it. And I actually, to me, it's pretty impressive. You can speculate about different things. So was Vashti banished? Was she thrown into the, you know, the harem of concubines? And, you know, because back in the medieval times when they banished someone like this, they just sent them to like a convent and they became nuns or whatever. You know, you only live one life and... Well, they say this, a coward dies many deaths over and over and over, male or female, but a courageous person only dies once. And I think maybe she had died enough of a cowardly life. And whatever it takes to get by, and every woman has her point where that's enough, as does really should every man too when you're in a situation like this. So Vashti drew the line, it cost her everything. She's, she's not a princess anymore. She's not a queen anymore. But you can be sure when the women around Medo-Persian Empire went to bed at night, and even though the decree goes out like, hey, you better not do what she did, you better be sure when those women were having tea, when the men were around, it was like, yeah, Vashti. Yeah. That's some queen. You know, like, yeah, you go, girl, little Queen Vashti right there. Yeah, you put that guy in his place. There, you know, I've got lots of daughters, two of them. I've got granddaughters. Three of them, maybe another on the way. You know, like, hey, I've got a sister. I had a mother. You know what I'm saying? I've never thought much about Queen Vashti until I spent three, four weeks reading Esther. And I keep looking at her life going like, wow. Reading the extra stuff about her life. Like, wow. She died on that hill. So we get the application of don't be a drunken fool from her husband, and we get the application from her is, you know what? Know what hill you're willing to die on and hold the line, and no matter what, you know, like, to me, I got to just say before we move on, because we won't see her again, to me, I'm, I'm impressed. 
She, in my book, she's a heroine uh, because she was willing to stand for what she believed. And, and the last thing she had, you can take everything from someone, but you, know, you can't separate someone from the Lord. And really, the, the self-determined dignity that you have between you and, and your maker, that's yours. You cannot let anyone on planet Earth, the devil himself, or those led by him, take away your dignity of you being created in the image and the glory of God and for the purposes of God and that he's in control of your life. And that's something that's always in play no matter what evil men or evil people do to you. Yes and amen. So good for Vashti and bad for the king. Now, we read on in verse 13. Um, then, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarish, Maris, Marsena, and uh, Memukan. Notice the different names, like they're different than Jewish names. It's kind of funny. we got like new names, but they're not like Jewish names. And this, the seven princes of Persia and Media, they had access to the king's presence, who ranked highest in the kingdom. And, uh, you know, the question is, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Arasuris brought to her by the eunuchs. And uh, Memukan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the, all the provinces of King Ahurus. Uh, uh, for the queen's behavior will become known to all the women, so they will be despise their husbands in their eyes. And when they report King King Asuras commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. So this day, uh, the noble ladies of uh, Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of Persians and the Medes, so it will be and not to be altered that Vashti shall no more shall come no more before King Arhazuras, and let the king give the royal position to another who is better than she is. Well, when the king's decree, which will be made, is proclaimed throughout all of his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memukan. And then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak the language of his own people. You know that song, The Tears of a Clown? The Motown song, The Tears of a Clown? You know, you can put on a face that you're okay. You can put on a face that you're doing just fine because the girl left you, or it's over, or the guy left you. But the tears of a clown are the tears of a clown. And I personally think this king, this phrase, verse 21, and the reply pleased the king. How much could it please the king? He now goes to bed by himself. Two are better than one, and he's back to one. Him and this woman shared, every reason to believe they shared sexual intimacy, friendship, laughter, human experience. And for one stupid, drunken folly, the pinnacle of a, six months of folly, now he's alone. In the world and business, we call this a lose-lose. Still, though, I'm not sure I can call Vashti a loser for maintaining her dignity. But he's definitely the loser. Oh, you can fire your wife, and many men do, unfortunately, as some of you already know. I mean, you're not off the hook with the Lord for it. And whatever the problems were that led to you losing your wife, you're just going to lose the next wife if you don't learn from it, right? I mean, that's, you know, that we've seen that. 
You see, people get, sometimes people get married for a lot of different reasons over and over. It happens. In my brother's case, it was repetition of the same things. That's why he's so committed now to his third wife and all the challenges they face because he just doesn't want to be the forever loser that way. He's told me, you know, come hell or high water, I want to finish strong on this one like a good Catholic. That's how my brother's approaching it. And his wife requires a lot of extra attention. And now they're taking care of her parents that require a lot of extra attention. But my brother's like, he's, he's, he's determined to learn from that. It pleased the king. How can you please any man to replace a woman that stood by your side to your own benefit, to, to benefit you? It was gorgeous. Even if she was, even if she wasn't that nice, that's possible. Even if she was spoiled, that's possible too. You're still alone. And you still committed yourself to that woman. You let her wear the throne on her head that says, I am the king's wife. You entrusted her as being, in God's decree, the two become one. You entrusted her with being that person in your life, the most powerful man in the world. And now it pleases you to put her away. Let me tell you something about this story. It would be four years before he put the crown on Esther's head. Oh, it's just one chapter in your Bible. But if you're paying attention, it's four years. His drunken mistake on one night. Uh, well, you know, when you're rich, you never really know who your friends are, right? You always have people who want to be with you. So if you're the most powerful man, you can, and you can make women sleep with you, but does that, but it ends up like, do they love you? The greatest craving that we all have is to be loved, sincerely, truly loved. That's why we love love stories. That's why you older people cried when we watched the movie Love Story in the 60s, right? That's why we love love stories. And, you know, the deepest craving we have is God is love, and he made us love him and to know love and be loved. And between a man and a woman, that is that pinnacle where you experience things that are just so precious that God designed outside of time, space, and matter. And he lost it all. And I just read this phrase, that it pleased, it pleased the king. Like, how? It's going to be four years before you get a new wife. And she might be, a, a, an, in all fairness to Esther, a better wife, but it doesn't even matter. Like, it does work together for good, but like, just looking at chapter one in his context, this man, huh? you can have all the power in the world, but you cannot make a woman love you. In fact, she can very much despise you by self-determination. Even King David knew that with Michael. So, on top of that, in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, King Artaxerxes decided to expand his empire, and he went and picked a battle with the Greeks, a big battle with the Greeks, and he lost. So the guy that was always a winner lost his, fired his wife, and went and picked a huge war and battle with Greece, and he lost. That's what happened in the four years. We might call it the intertestament period for this king. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, four years without a wife, and trying to expand his kingdom, the guy that's got it all figured out, we might say the stock was dropping, and there was a big sell-off, and was selling short, if you follow me. Okay. Lose, lose. It's, but like I said, I think as we get deeper in this book, we see that it seems like he got smarter. 
History says he's a pretty irrational person, like up and down, but he makes better decisions in the book as we go. Now, chapter 2, and we're doing two chapters tonight. After these things, when the wrath of the king Assyrus subsided, because even the most angry man or woman eventually does subside their wrath and think like, what did I just do? He remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, hey, let, let a beautiful young, young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of uh, Haggai, the king's eunuch, uh, uh, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young women who please the king uh, be queen instead of Vashti. All right, so now we have this plan. We're going to replace her. But you know, people are not that easy to replace, right? Like, we understand that. If you lose a loved one, you don't just replace them. Like, when people lose children, people say, oh, you can have more children. It's not like that. Everyone's unique, right? You can lose a job, but if it's a job you really like, then you lose the job. And and you get another job, it's like, it might pay better, but it might not be this. Like, things always change. Everything's always changing. Here in America, we change presidents every four years. We change our government every two years on a federal level, right, with the midterms. Things are always changing. Pastor Chuck sets into eternity. Brian Broderson, his son-in-law, is now the pastor. That's a dramatic change. Talking with Jonathan Laurie two months ago at the beach and how he's being prepared to, you know, replace his dad, Greg Laurie, eventually with the harvest ministry. That's going to be a change. Like Queen... Let the king be, let oh, this woman be the queen instead of Ashti. There's always something instead of. That's just the way life works. Instead of this, now it's going to be that. I can't always be the pastor. I'm not going to live to be 100 years old. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, instead of, like, it, you lived here, but, you know, the landlord said, I'm selling the property. You got to find a new place to live. So instead of living here, now you got to go figure out where you're going to live instead of that. Instead of serving in this church, people that serve with Garrett, uh, Brennan Beeler over here at Golden West for a couple years, and instead of, hey, he's cease and desist. He's pastoring in Eagle Rock, Colorado now. So instead of pastoring in Golden West College on Sunday mornings, Brennan Beeler, now he's, he's, he's in Eagle Rock. So instead of this, it's that. Like, that's how life works. Instead of this, it's that. Now, I, I was thinking about this on this trip. There's always change. Some changes we like. We hope changes are an upgrade, right? When something's instead of this and it's that, you want it to be better. That's, that's what we want. But sometimes it's not always like that. So it's really important on the instead of, because I was really thinking about this, that we just handle well the Lord's hand in the instead of. Because, you know, instead of this president, we might get that president. And generally speaking, half of America is happy and half of America is not happy. So how you respond to that is how it works. Instead of working in this department, you get shifted over to this department. How do you handle that? It's the response. About six weeks ago, I was reading on Abraham. I read through Genesis and reading about Father Abraham and you know, the son of promise, Isaac. And then you read that sad chapter where Sarah dies and Abraham wept. And then you read that Abraham married Keturah. He had a second wife. So, in, so for Isaac, the son of promise, instead of mom Sarah, who's in the hall of fame in Hebrews 11, he gets Keturah. Instead of being the only you know, son, if you will, I mean, yet Ishmael, the other brother, now Father Abraham's producing a whole baseball team with Keturah. 
You read the genealogy through Keturah, it's like a baseball team. And he just kept having kids. So his mom couldn't have any children except him, the son of promise. Dad loses her. He's older. You're like, hey, I'm just, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to remarry. Uh, really, Dad? Like, I don't know. Like, I've met Keturah at dinner. I'm not sure. Are you sure about this pop? Yeah, I'm sure. You know, this is the woman I want to marry. And, and, and okay, Dad. And then, like, this kid, hey, Isaac, meet your new brother. <laughs> okay, you know, Isaac's like 40, 45. There's, you know, one-year-old. Like, yeah, here's my new brother, you know, half-brother. And, and it's like, here's another one and another one and another one. Like, you know, like, instead of, instead of your mom, it's Keturah. Instead of you and your dad and half-brother Ishmael over there across the sand dunes, it's all these kids. Isn't that the way life works? You can't, you know, this, it, life happens. Human beings live. They make more human beings. It's the way it works. That's just how it works. And when they're tired of human beings, they have dogs that they treat like human beings. And cats. Spending time with Barbie. She's a new cat lady. Let me tell you, those cats, they're like, eh. All of her little friends, they start talking when she comes home. You just got to handle it well thinking like how Vashti's out and someone else is coming in instead of, that phrase instead of really got my attention. Instead of means it's something different than what you knew. It's something different than what you had. And it just, it, it, it says, let's invite the Lord to be over instead of. And let's make every new instead of a positive experience by how we frame it through faith, obedience, humility, and Christian character. Let's make the instead ofs Though everyone's going to have an opinion of Esther versus Vashti four years later. Let's not even go there. Let's just think about how, how we, we see this for good and how it impacts our life. And how we're part of solutions when it's instead of that, which we knew and understood. Now it's this, which maybe we don't understand. Let's, let's, let's look at every instead of his opportunity to, to shine for the Lord. As we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before men like a city on a hill. So there's an instead of coming, and, and here we go. And the, that, that pleased the king as well, and he did so, right? The, this thing pleased the king, and he, he did so. so okay, all right. Well, it is a step forward from folly. So in Shushan, verse 5, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of uh, Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish of Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Of course, we read all that in 2 Chronicles. And Mordecai had brought up uh, Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. So we see on physical appearance, she was, she was very attractive. We know from the story she had a beautiful heart, too, which is more important. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, and so he raised her. So she was orphaned, but she had relatives. So it was when the king's command, verse 8, decree was heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that uh, Esther also was taken to the king's palace in the care of Haggai and the custodian of the women. Now, the young woman, that is Esther, pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations for her besides her allowance. And then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. 
And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each woman's turn came to, to, go, to, to go into King Artaxerxes, and after she completed uh, 12 months of preparation, all your preparation impressed the king, according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of the preparation for thus were the days of the preparation appointed, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarter to the king's palace. In the evening she went in, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken into King Artaxerxes into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabith, in the seventh year of his reign. So see, there's the four-year gap between Vashti and Esther in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all of his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So one good thing to see here, he's not throwing a half-year drunken party. This is feast number four, and it would seem he's wised up from the failures and the folly of the three other feasts. Of course, Vashti's feast was one of those three. And he makes it in honor of his new wife on huh? the Feast of Esther. You know, sometimes you do need a second chance in life, right? You're like, it's nice that God's the God of the second chance and many more. It's nice that God gives second chances because we sure have more than one failure in the human journey. Yes and amen. So we, we love those second chances, you know, and whether you failed in business or love or family relations or being a good citizen and <laughs> gone to prison, lost your voting rights, we just love it that God gives you second chances, don't we? I think of my sister and just, I look at my sister, we're decorating the Christmas tree with all the grandkids a week ago, and I just was... I just had tears in my eyes. I was like crying. Like, I was just so happy because I can still see her pushing a grocery cart in Vista seven years ago on Mother's Day by herself. Just praise the Lord for the God of second chance. Oh, she brought out the four kittens. You know, she has the four kittens. And she brought out the four kittens to all the grandkids and Zippy and Bells, and they were just going crazy over these kittens. It was, I just, I just kept crying. I think it's a good thing if you're older and you just cry at happy experiences, don't you? Some people get older and just angry at every experience. I get older, I just, I just, I keep telling everyone I love them, you know, like, I love you, man. People are like, okay, you know. But like, yeah, it's just like, you know, it's the fourth quarter or the third period in hockey or fourth quarter. I mean, this is it, you know, like. Yeah, you just, you want to, you want to learn you want to get second chances and learn. And I'll tell you what, Ahasuerus certainly seems like a different person here. We know he lost the battle against the Greeks between Vashti and this. He's not saying, hey, come dance half naked before the city and my friends. 
puts the royal crown on her and says, we have a feast, a feast, the feast of Esther. Everyone recognizes the new queen. Pretty cool, huh? It's pretty cool if you're looking at details and change behavior. And Because what we say, every year we want to be a better version of who we are at the end of the year than how we started the year. And I would say this is definitely a better version. There's a better look with this beginning of his second, how he's starting his second marriage with the new queen as opposed to how he finished his first marriage with the first queen. And you can't get back water under the bridge, but you can definitely apply lessons from failures to be a better version to the benefit of, of other people, particularly for Esther. And we're going to see he treated her like a queen. Isn't it funny? She's the orphan, and he treats her like a princess her entire life in this book. There's no blemish in his relationship with Esther. But Queen Vashti, who is a princess, it didn't work out that way. It's, it's just, you just never know what the Lord's doing. He might be quiet in this book and unnamed, but he's, he's doing stuff for sure. It's a beautiful story. Uh, try and picture the royal crown. You know, when they put the royal crown on Esther, this woman who had submitted to everybody, she submitted to her parents, she submitted to Uncle Mordecai, she submitted to the chief eunuch and his council. She's going to submit to the king. She's a godly woman, she's a God fearing woman. And just her beauty, the virgin woman and the crown being put on her. What a beautiful day for the people of God. And what a good look for the king who's been humbled by failure in the last four years. Verse 19, we finish up the chapter. God gave her favor. God gave her favor, and she obviously had... God gave her favor. It says in this, this passage of Scripture that she obtained favor back in verse 9, and then it says he gave her favor wherever she went, and there in verse 15, and God gave her favor. And people, before we move on, people ask me, like, well, how do you, like, Joseph had favor in Egypt. Like, how do you find favor? How do you define favor? Well, you know, it's just like God blessing you. And for some reason, he might seem to give some people a double blessing and other people less. But I, I figured this out. Because people write books on how to get God's favor, as if there's a formula to it. Even Joel Olstein, in his book, Your Best Life Now, seven things. One was getting favor from God in his book. He considered that one of the most seven important things important things of your life in his best-selling book. Now, he had his opinion how you get it. I'll give you mine. This is what I'm sure of. If you walk in humility and you walk in gratitude and you walk in obedience and you're willing to take steps of faith, I can't guarantee you the favor of God, but I can tell you, you're certainly set up to receive the favor of God, right? Those are things God blesses. If you're looking for God's favor, do the things that he blesses, and that's how we're going to find his favor. So the fact that she found this favor with everybody, I'm inclined to believe that's where her heart was at with the Lord. And the book reveals it anyways. Verse 19, when virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. See, there's that submission, that quiet spirit. In those days when Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, uh, Big Thon and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This passage is almost parenthetical on this chapter, but it is important because it sets up tremendous success for Mordecai later on in how the book ends. When we get to chapter 9 and 10, 
that 8, 9, 10, all the opportunity success is based upon these little details. So let me say this in a closing thought. Mordecai, there in the gate, heard this thing. He did the right thing. He reported it. And it's written and recorded. And I just want to remind all of us, just because people don't see what you've done doesn't mean God hasn't written it in his book, the king's book. Because what the Bible tells us is not one good deed done that God will not reward in eternity. You may not see it in this life, but you'll see it in the next. God's got a book too, and it's way better than the Kings of Persia book for sure. Yes? Yeah. Be encouraged, WG. Enjoy this month in a special way with the people you love. Make the most of it with the Lord. And uh, we're going to have a great time in this book. We're going to keep growing in this book as we go through Christmas time with Jesus and Queen Esther.